Hello, very good morning to you. Welcome to Breakfast with Dan Walker and Louise Minchin. Headlines for you at six o'clock this morning. Boris Johnson outlines a gradual easing of the lockdown in England, but there's a warning things could change if the infection rate goes up. Confined to our homes in lockdown, we've never needed to be better informed about how a global pandemic is affecting our lives. As a result, one unexpected group have found themselves classified as key workers alongside healthcare staff and supermarket workers. That is, journalists. Beth Rigby from Sky. Uh, thank you. First Secretary of State, on Sunday you said you were, and I quote you, reasonably confident that deaths in care homes are coming down at about the same rate more broadly as captured by the NHS figures. What does this new data tell you? With the daily briefing at five, the nation can now see just how journalists operate. And as a result, they, along with the NHS and the government, have found themselves under increased scrutiny. Of so many tragic stories, this is surely one of the saddest. A pregnant nurse working at this hospital has died after contracting COVID-19. Journalists have found themselves under attack on social media for not being positive enough or supporting the government. Meanwhile, Downing Street has posted lengthy rebuttals of newspaper articles which criticised how the government had been dealing with the outbreak. But what should reporters' roles be in these extraordinary times? They tell us coronavirus is a great leveller. It's not. It's much, much harder if you're poor. How do we stop it making social inequality even greater? Emily Maitlis's powerful opening on Newsnight raised uncomfortable questions about the pandemic. Meanwhile, one of the prime critics of the government has turned out to be not a political correspondent, but a former newspaper editor best known as a friend of Donald Trump. Piers Morgan on Good Morning Britain. With respect, Minister, Germany is testing 10 times as many of its citizens a day as we are. I mean, that is a complete disgrace. Why? Why? We're supposed to be the sixth biggest economy in the world. Perhaps unsurprising, then, that the government has incorporated a new element into their daily briefing. Well, we're going to go first to uh, members of the public who've got some questions to ask us. I, I'd like to hear uh, from Michelle in Cornwall. We are getting inquiries daily to book a holiday let from June onwards. We are worried there will be an influx of people coming away from the cities and to the tourist hotspots, which could bring a second wave to areas such as Cornwall. Please can we ask how tourism within the UK will be managed in the coming weeks? Importing the public's uh, questions well, into briefings is the latest move by the government. Yet in the past couple of weeks, research into how the media have performed in this crisis suggests that the outlook for journalists is less gloomy than social media outrage might suggest. A report from the Reuters Institute of Journalism found that nearly a third of the public thought journalists were fair and balanced in their reporting with equal numbers thinking that they were either too critical or not critical enough. I've just got visions of Boris Johnson wrestling, wrestling a mugger to the floor. Wrestling a mugger who's dressed in a COVID-19 costume. <laughs> Meanwhile, as that clip from Channel 4's Gogglebox shows, the public themselves are forming their own opinion on the government, reflected in new research from Cardiff University, which finds that trust remains high in broadcast news in particular, but participants also felt there was not enough scrutiny of the government. But many challenges remain for the media, including the difficulty of reporting while self-isolating. So broadcasting is hard work and I can't do it alone. And that's why over the last one month, there's been one person who's been helping me record anything, uh, do my live reports as well. And that is this person right here behind the camera, my mother. Hi. 
or the question of whether there are some things they should be reporting at all. Right, and then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or, or almost a cleaning? Because you see it gets on the lungs and it does a tremendous number of the lungs. So it'd be interesting to check that. Welcome to The Know-How, a podcast aimed at bringing academics and professionals together to dissect the pressing matters of today. I'm Dr. Glenda Cooper. And I'm Dr. Lindsay Blumel. Today, we're looking at the role of journalists in reporting crises such as coronavirus and whether criticisms of media are justified. Paul Bradshaw leads the MA courses in journalism at Birmingham City University. He was so concerned about social media conversations about what journalists should be doing that he wrote a blog that was widely circulated. We talked to him and began by asking why it was important to do so. It felt like there was more and more criticism of journalists, particularly around the daily briefing. And that, and that daily briefing seemed to have become a, um, a performance of journalism that people were, were measuring journalism as a whole by, which, uh, which straight away made me a bit concerned that people were taking a, a very strange kind of subset of journalism as, as somehow representative of the whole thing. You know, from a personal perspective, I was seeing that sort of sentiment cropping up in in uh, chat groups and I, I kind of what actually happened was um, I'm a, I manage a boys football team and um, the, the group of managers passed on this message that a number of people have shared and and so I kind of felt I had to leap to the not the defence and some people have misinterpreted it as a defence it's really more of a of an explanation of actually journalism isn't supposed to do these things that you're complaining that it doesn't do. You know, it's not supposed to support governments. It's not supposed to make us feel positive. Being constructive was was a key thing. You know, let's make a constructive mm. uh, 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 contribution and, and this perception of what is actually constructive. So I wanted to kind of explain that actually journalists are being constructive and there are different ways of being constructive. So you mentioned in the blog two particular examples, I think PPE and um deaths outside hospitals in care homes. These are two areas where you think that journalists have really played a part in how we understand what's been happening with COVID-19. Is that correct? Yeah, so those were just two of the examples that sprung to mind. There's the announcement of compensation for people who've died um, in the NHS of coronavirus. That really followed uh, some campaigning journalism by the Daily Express but also a, a particular MP calling for that. So there have been quite a few examples, but those were the two that, that sprung to mind. I think it's interesting that obviously the government have now introduced this um, a question from the public into the daily briefing as well. What do you think of the significance of that is? Um, I, I, I love that. And, and I think journalists or news organisations should, should feel a little bit... Um, you know, I feel like they've made a mistake there in not doing that themselves. Again, there were calls for that on social media um, for, for a number of weeks. And I kind of felt like journalists should have called their bluff on that. And so, you know, I, I think the government, if you like, stole a march on them in doing that. Actually, though, the, the questions themselves have been fascinating in two ways. Firstly, you know, the very first question seemed quite tame. And I think that's actually helped journalists in terms of showing that the journalists um, perhaps do come up with better questions than members of the public would. But also, I think that there were two questions from the public and neither of them 
really Boris Johnson was able to answer. And I think that shows how hard it is to prepare and anticipate what the public is going to ask compared to anticipating what journalists are going to ask and, and specifically the political lobby, because um, the political journalists have been massively overrepresented in the, the people asking the questions. I've been doing some analysis today and it's um, around a quarter of questions have been coming from political journalists and only about six percent from health or science correspondents. That that has been an issue that, again, I think has um, been debated on social media. Why are political correspondents covering the story? Why are health and science reporters not doing so? Do you have some sympathy with that point of view? I do, yes. And, and I think, um, again, I think that's one of the, the, the problems of a daily briefing as, as some sort of insight into journalism as a whole. Um, really what you're what people are seeing is an insight into political journalism which is quite a um, you know although it's important it's it's a niche and and sometimes you get political correspondents asking questions where you get a sense that they don't necessarily understand the science behind what they're asking I, I have a lot of sympathy with that and I think it it does demonstrate a, a systemic um, challenge for news organisations and a lack of awareness that that daily briefing is not just about holding the politicians to account but actually people are using it to to, to scrutinise journalism as a form of power and 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 rightly so. There's actually been a lot of research you know following your blog looking and talking about how the news media um, are doing their job at the moment. Um, there's some research from the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism in Oxford. Now, they found that a third of uh, people think the news media are doing a good job, but that's much lower than, say, the NHS on 92% and the government on 45%. What do you think we can read into that about what people feel about um, how the news media is doing their job? I, I think, first of all, that that was really good news. Um, not necessarily the fact that it was a third of people thinking that they did well, but the fact that it was equally balanced between left and right really surprised me. Um, and you know, almost no difference in terms of the perception of the, the media doing a good job based on political persuasion. So that um, is the most important dimension to me. And, and you know, it's it's a bit of a cliche in journalism, that if you're getting criticism from both sides, then you must be doing a good job. There's some work from YouGov um, talking about their polling this week. And um, what was interesting that they said that they found a real distinction in who we trust, depending on our political allegiance, with so Labour voters trusting the BBC and broadsheets and Conservatives trusting um, mid-market and, and tabloids. What can we make of that? We know that age, for example, has become a, a, a big predictor of voting behaviour. And, and um, so, so in some ways, what we might be looking at here is not necessarily correlation being causation, but there's, there's another variable here, there's another factor which is actually the cause. So it might be that, well, older people are more likely to buy mid-market newspapers and older people are also more likely to vote Conservative. It, it's it's quite a tricky one to unpick. In the, in the Reuters uh, research, um, they said that almost half of respondents said that they were actively avoiding the news at this time. How worrying do you find that? 
I, I don't. Uh, <laughs> I think that's perfectly natural and actually probably quite healthy. I have to say this is the first time in you know, 15 years of teaching journalism that I've advised students to take a break from news mm. uh, at, at times. Um, so, you know, from a mental health perspective, um, and actually this is a challenge facing news generally is that we are becoming aware of the negative impact that news consumption has on mental health. So for journalists themselves, you can, you can end up consuming too much news and, and that impairs your performance as a journalist because it, it affects your mental health. Um, so I certainly wouldn't um, think that members of the public who are not journalists can, should do any different. But what would be worrying is if um, people switch off news forever sort of thing. And, and also, I think, as an aside to that, going back to the methodology of these sorts of questions, we should always be wary of what people say they do in research versus what they actually do. So thinking about journalists, who, if this is a slightly um, flippant question to ask, as journalists, who do you think has had a good pandemic, in inverted commas, um, and who's had a bad one? Um, I do think that broadcast um, news organisations have it's been fascinating to see them transform their news gathering. And I, and I think what they've done particularly well is put a human face on this story. To some extent, broadcasters had to adapt from seeking out visual stories, which is what it normally does. You know, it, it looks, it, it travels somewhere and it takes uh, films footage and creates stories out of that. Um, and that shapes the stories that it's going to tell to some extent. It's had to adapt to home working and, uh, and, um, and to some extent focusing more on the content of, of the stories rather than the style. The other fascinating thing is, is, is newspapers putting their party allegiance aside to some extent in, I mean, the Sunday Times story on Boris Johnson was, was a particularly, was probably the key example of that. Yeah. Um, were newspapers, are, 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 if you like, seeing a bigger picture than they normally would. Coming back to your point about broadcast, though, one of the highest profile journalists, I suppose you could say, um, to critique the government, um, could be named as Piers Morgan. He certainly <laughs> uh, had a lot of um, talk around him. Uh, why do you think that is? Uh, again, because I think to some extent he's kind of stepped away from his normal role and, and the political position, if you like, that, that you'd normally expect Piers Morgan to take. Um, you know, a famous, uh, if you like, friend of Trump and Trump has now, um, you know, is, is, is not engaging with him. So that fallout probably represents the bigger surprise around Piers Morgan um, yeah. shifting position. Um, he makes shareable moments you know a, a lot of the, uh, the the interactions that he has on his program then then become shared widely on social media and and probably more people see it that way than than on the program itself um, and perhaps for many people he articulates a certain if you like anger and frustration that uh, you can't articulate in in more um standard news programs. What about journalists? I'm thinking of people like Alison Pearson at The Telegraph, who have been hugely critical of lockdown. But what about when journalists are actively criticising and challenging 
health messages that governments are putting out. This is probably the difficult thing about when people talk about journalists and journalism is, is um, you know, there are lots of different types of journalists. There are lots of different types of journalism. Alison Pearson is a columnist. Uh, that's a very different job to uh, to a you know, health reporter or a, a news reporter. Um, and, you know, a columnist job or one of the jobs of a col- columnist is to stimulate debate, is to perhaps be a little bit controversial. To what extent journalists have a responsibility to um, support, uh, if you like, the public health message? I think that's a really interesting issue. And um, the honest answer is I I really struggle to come up with a a firm opinion on that in terms of columnists and and in terms of Alison Pearson, because on the one hand, there is a clear argument for, you know, you should not endanger the public. Um, but on the other hand, you know, there's a, a free speech issue in terms of it's it's perfectly reasonable for people to air concerns. We focused very much uh, on the UK and how journalism has operated um, here. I just want to take you very briefly across the Atlantic for a moment. So obviously, there are daily press briefings sort of going on there that are being led by uh, Donald Trump that have um, one could possibly say have ranged from the the dramatic to the erratic, um, particularly after the um, the I can only call it the bleach mm. uh, press conference. Um, there's been a suggestion by uh, American academics that actually the major news networks in the US should consider not broadcasting uh, Trump's press conferences live. Um, as a UK academic. What do you think of this idea? Yeah, it's, it's something that I've been following for the last couple of weeks. And, and I know a number of news organisations have already been taking different approaches to that and have, have been kind of having that debate in their own pages as well. I think the Washington Post is just one that, that's discussed in their pages. Um, some of the solutions, it, it might be NPR, I'm thinking, that, that delayed, they kind of did a delayed broadcast. I, I think it might have been by 30 seconds so they could... Uh, fact check what was being said and and then add that context as the delayed feed went out and kind of say well this actually isn't true or this here's the wider context. The arguments have been really interesting. I I think the difference between this and the the example of uh, Alison Pearson kind of encouraging that in her column is that the difference in, in this case you're reporting what someone else has said and as a journalist you are obliged to add context uh, to establish the the truthness, if you like, the truth of what's being said or or not, um, and and that's probably the key consideration. Um, the the counter argument is the clear news value of a presidential briefing, um, the fact that you might be accused of censorship and and it might undermine trust if you refuse to broadcast it entirely. So that there are a number of of dynamics at play. Um, and the, the key thing is, I, I think, the context. Um, the, there's, not, there's not necessarily any need to, to live broadcast that information. You can still get that information across. You can still report what's being said. Our responsibility is to make sure that they get the context to it. We shouldn't, to some extent, walk away from our responsibility to report those remarks with context. Um, if you see that the media's role is merely relaying what the president has said, then you're missing the point of what journalism is, really. 
You've been listening to The Know-How, the podcast that dissects pressing issues with academics and experts. It was presented by Lindsay Blumel and Glenda Cooper and produced by Atina Dimitrova. For more information on this and our other episodes, please go to our website, www.thenowhowpodcast.com or follow us on Twitter at Know How Podcast or on Facebook at The Know How Podcast.